everyone, and welcome to What's Brewing Seasfa. What's Brewing Seasfa is a podcast produced for the California Community College's Student Financial Aid Administrators Association. I'm your host, Dennis Schrader. I serve as the 2021-2022 Seasfa cast president. It's another Tuesday, just me and you, as Dana is busy holding off all the crowds of students. So let's get this show going. And again, welcome to another episode of What's Brewing, Cisfa. Let's start us off with our first cup. Or whatever you're drinking uh, at this time of the day. It is a late start to the show. It's been a busy day. But we'll get through everything. There is a lot of news out there. Some specifically about financial aid. Some just kind of related. So the first one that we have is a letter uh, sent to the president and the White House just a little while ago, signed off by NASFA, TICAS, and NCAN. There's a bunch of abbreviations for you. NASFA, of course, is our National Association of Student Financial Aid Administrators. TICAS is the Institute for College Access and Success. And NCAN is the National College Attainment Network, all uh, organizations that work on behalf of students in college or wanting to go to college. The letter is an urging of the federal government and Department of Ed in particular to extend the waivers on verification requirements for the 2022-2023 award year. So something that came about middle of summer of 2021, as we were still in the middle of the pandemic instead of towards hopefully the end, I'm going to say hopefully the end as we are now, was a waiver for the 2021-22 award year, this current school year, of all the verification requirements. What this meant is schools were allowed to uh, waive the requirement for students to send in copies of tax returns, and certain things like that. So about 30 to 40% of students at any college are selected for this verification process. We were able to waive that uh, for simplicity and other reasons. So this letter that just went out end of last week is asking the Biden administration through the Department of Ed to put that waiver into effect for the coming school year. And again, it explains all the rationale for doing so and how this could, uh, again, help us get students into college and through the financial aid process. Now, as I'll say on anything, there's pros and cons, of course, to it. The pro being moving students along. The con being the cons out there who might take advantage of this by misreporting information that will not be followed up on a FAFSA. Um, Again, But it's one of these things, just like with loan defaults, do you plan for the tiny little percent, hopefully the tiny little percent, of the criminally oriented or the people who are going to default on student loans because of whatever reasons, do you plan law based upon that and hold back the rest, the high majority, 90% or more? So I'll say the letter in general, I, I would support it. I've read it. It's only three 
pages long, except for a whole long page afterwards, are all the people who are CC'd or others organizations that are joining in on this. Um, definitely worth reading. I will give you a link straight to the PDF provided by NASFA. Also coming out of the NASFA front, uh, from a NASFA survey done recently of institutions found that 35% of respondents say they sent their first aid offers the first time undergrad students before January. So, as it says here, students are learning their financial aid eligibility sooner thanks to the early FAFSA. And this takes into account that when you go back to 2017 or so, we used to have the FAFSA come out the first of the year, January 1st. Ask for tax information from the year that it ended the day before, which meant parents had to either put off doing the FAFSA until they had good tax returns, or they could estimate their information and then have to make corrections later. That seemed to work overall, but again, it did create extra confusion for people and students and closed the window down. Because again, with four-year institutions in particular, they want to get those award letters out sooner than later so that students who might be making choices among many colleges, especially those coming right out of high school, had the information in plenty of time to do so. And then shortly after that 2018 area, we moved to where the FAFSA became available October 1st. So from a high school student, uh, high school senior perspective, it's your fall semester of your senior year. October 1st comes around and you do your FAFSA right away for the next fall. And again, it moves students through the process sooner. They get the results sooner. And according to this survey, over a third of responding institutions have already got award offers out to students for the coming fall semester. Not a bad deal. So certainly some uh, things that have helped overall. Now, one of the downfalls has been, and this is the words that we're not supposed to use with students and parents, prior, prior year. What that means is if you did the FAFSA last October, for the coming fall of 2021, I'm sorry, fall of 2022, going forward in time, you had to use tax return information from 2020 because that was the last completed tax year. And so the reality is, by the time you go to school in fall of 2022, you have 18 months plus since that tax year information was close to accurate. What do you do if something's gone different? Gone sideways, I should say. You know, where income has gone down and maybe what you put on the FAFSA isn't so really, uh, you know, correct as far as, you know, representative of a family's true income and standing. Well, there certainly were more students and parents having to do income review requests, appeals, petitions, whatever we call it at the different schools. And that just meant that we got better up-to-date information. We could make adjustments accordingly. But it at least meant everybody got into the pool sooner. So I'll give you a link to this uh, article out at the NASA website. Good a summary about the survey and, again, what led up to doing earlier FAFSAs and how it's helped our students.
another uh, interesting thing here, and this is related to financial aid, but not specifically. Uh, it's about the U.S. House of Representatives just Friday, two Fridays ago, approved an amendment to add the College Transparency Act to another bill, which then the House passed. The College Transparency Act, under this, colleges would be required to collect and submit data to the Department of Ed regarding enrollment, persistence, transfer, and completion measures for all their programs and degrees. It would be disaggregated by demographics, like race, ethnicity, gender, and such, and it would permit the Department of Ed to periodically share the limited data with other federal agencies like the IRS and Social Security Administration. The idea there is to calculate postgraduate outcomes, like income and career prospects. Now, that would be aggregate data, as it says here. And the idea here is to, you know, be able to see how schools are both performing, but then also see those performance measures on a larger level uh, from colleges. So, interesting article, not too long, out at Inside Higher Ed. So, I'll give you a link to it. I think you have to sign up for a free account, so it's not a bad idea to do so. Let's move on to something straight from federal student aid. They had a uh, final reminder here. You've got only a few days left to perform mandatory SAIG software upgrades and install an EdConnect security patch by the 20th of this month. So this is something critical for them, for us at the colleges, that all users must complete their upgrades now to EdConnect 8.5.0. Followed by an 8.5.1 security patch. And um, uh, do this again by February 20th. Otherwise, you'll lose access to SAIG. So, I guess that final reminder out there to everybody who's running this kind of software. Let's go to some stuff from our friends at the California Student Aid Commission. I got four quick rundowns here. First, a special alert that came out on February 8th about CalGrant Access Awards for Foster Youth. So this is an update on the CalGrant Access Award for Foster Youth. And this is for current or former foster youth attending public institutions, how they may receive additional CalGrant benefits starting with this current school year. So eligibility was that a student had to be receiving CalGrant A, B, or C, attend a UC, Cal State, or a California community college. Be verified as an eligible foster youth by the California Department of Social Services and be under 26 years old as of July 1st of the award year. So eligibility includes an access award of up to $6,000 for Cal Grant A and B students and an additional $4,000 for those Cal Grant C students. So this is just some reminders of how that works, how it works in our web grant system and such, and how you can find and identify these students uh, with the proper code. So I'll give you this special alert direct link to the PDF in our show notes. And then we had a second special alert from our CSAC friends. This is about Learning Aligned Employment Program. So this is an update on the new LAEP, Learning Aligned Employment Program, established in the 2021-22 state budget. 
The new program offers eligible students at public colleges and universities the opportunity to earn money to help defray educational costs while gaining education-aligned career-related employment. So this is something I know I just had a discussion with our regional financial aid folks uh, from L.A. and O.C. on our meeting yesterday because it's so new. This memo is so new. I don't even think I knew about this memo yet. But again, here it's about eligible students in the following categories are given priority, like first-generation students, current or former foster youth, students who are homeless or at risk of being homeless. It's about a school, you know, the school has to sign up for this in a sense. Got to do it by June of this year with the expectation that this program will be implemented in the coming 2022-23 school year. Funding allocations will be based on each participating institution's share of students receiving a federal Pell Grant in the most recent prior fiscal year and the total number of participation participating institutions. So there's a lot of new stuff here. If you want more information, I suggest those of you who are at uh, financial aid offices, read through the memo. Uh, just so you know about it, because you're going to hear about it. Uh, uh, because it's new. It's money for our students for getting work that, in a sense, is aligned with, hopefully, their career plans. I got some other stuff from CSAC, but I think we need a little bit of music. And then we'll go on to more fun stuff. like that we're back for our second cups everyone good time to refill because when you've got so much stuff coming out of the student aid commission sometimes you need a little extra drink i'm drinking coke zero everybody with nothing mixed inside so two operations memos came out recently this one on february 3rd which is a reminder about 2021-22 current school year GPA upload and community college enrollment files. So the deadline being March 2nd uh, of this year uh, to remind us of timely uploads of this information. Uh, so the enrollment file upload functionalities for winter and spring are now available in the web grants program online. And both uploads are necessary for consideration for the coming 2022 23 what we call Entitlement 2 or E2 Preliminary Award Offers. So what this is, is for those who don't know, for Cal Grants, <clears throat> grade point average is one of the requirements and criteria for receiving a Cal Grant. Usually for high school students, it's their high school GPA. And for most of them coming out of their senior year, it's their junior and senior, I'm sorry, sophomore and junior year grades unweighted, without uh, physical ed or ROTC grades figured in to determine their GPA. But then once a student goes to college, especially for those students who may not have graduated from a school either with GPA calculation or a foreign school, then we can use a college GPA. But there are some requirements to do that. A student has to have a certain number of units earned at the college. They have to be degree applicable and uh, some other rules like that. But once we have that information, colleges can then submit those. And then in a sense, students could be in line for Cal grants. So this is a reminder of this in this op memo 
to get that in. You guys have about two weeks to do so. And then lastly, somewhat related, was a, a reminder about how to do uh, in a separate ops memo sent out just at the end of last week about reestablished GPA submissions for our DREAMAX students. And so this is for students to receive consideration for all applicable Cal Grant programs. GPA must be submitted by, again, March 2nd. And this includes community college reestablished GPAs. And that just means, uh, in a sense, they're going to use that in lieu of any high school GPA. So there's a lot of technical terms here. I'm not going to bore my non-financial aid audience with this, although I probably already have bored you a little bit with it. So uh, I'll just say that this memo goes in a little more detail about how to handle these submissions online for our Dreamer students. Let's move on to some not specifically financial aid news and then some, and we'll get right back into some other financial aid news. Last couple things here for the day. Article out uh, the Hechinger report on entitled more students are dropping out of college during COVID and it could get worse. Subtitling here, the share of students returning for their second year of college fell in 2020 to the lowest level since 2012, and the Omicron surge and lingering uncertainty around the virus could deepen the dropout crisis. And so the Hexinger Report is a nice website that has these kind of long articles here. And again, it's, um, as they call themselves, they're a national nonprofit newsroom that reports on one topic, education. And you can get, again, you can sign up for the weekly newsletters if you like. But it talks about some different student examples here of students who had uh, started college and then during the pandemic at some point decided not to go back for all kinds of reasons. We're talking mental health, academic preparedness, uh, preparedness as far as being ready to switch to online learning mode from your home. Some people maybe from their car if their home is too busy and having to deal with things like that. So. It's definitely a worthwhile article to read. Uh, again, it touch, puts you in touch with uh, the different reasonings why students all over the U.S. may have started college but are not getting back in quite yet. And regardless of, you know, how much money we've thrown at this uh, issue through the three different Higher Ed Emergency Relief Fund or HERF funding rounds we've had, of money coming to colleges. Last couple things here on the list here. I've got another reminder that we have the virtual conference for NASFA coming up July 11th through the 15th. And that registration is open is hundred percent online and you can have a whole team go to it for one price. So it's not a bad uh, deal there. The schedule is available. Registration is available. This is separate from their in-person conference that they're doing separately on separate dates so it is open again july 11th through 15th and again for one price for your whole institution it's probably worthwhile to at least sign up send yourself if you're at a college find the money remind your administrators that they could use herfin cares money to help you out on this because it's training it's really mostly training at these conferences 
especially in the virtual world because you can't be roaming around a uh, vendor exhibitor floor quite as easily. Last thing from NASA, I thought this was kind of interesting. Apparently, uh, uh, someone uh, announced uh, here, there was a college, uh, De Uval, I'm, I'm going to say that's wrong, I'm sure, in De Uval College in Buffalo, New York. Created some waves, it says here, Venvi, when it announced that it would reduce its work week down to 32 hours per week without any reduction in pay or benefits. Colleges across the country are thinking about ways they can offer flexibility to retain staff without sacrificing service. And so one NASA member here posed this theoretical question. If you were given the choice, would you rather A, have a four-day work week, or B, work from home all or most of the time? And you can add some comments on here, but you can vote online, everyone. I'm going to give you the link to the voting. I'd like to see what the results of this would be. I don't even know which answer I'd like more, having the four-day work week or working from home all or most of the time. If it's me today, I'd probably go with the four-day work week, even though it's still going to end up being five because I am pretty much done and tired of working from home. I'm so glad to be back on campus since the fall. So I'll give you that. Last item here comes from Cal Matters at calmatters.org, where they, again, nonprofit news and reporting on things here in California. And the article is titled about California rewarding volunteering college students with aid, but spending half the money on overhead. So it talks about a new California program to financially reward students for volunteering has drawn some national attention. But less than half of the budgeted money is actually going to student aid. So the new program is called the California Volunteers College Corps. And it's backed by $159 million, mostly in state money. And the promise is to award up to $10,000 per student to a little over 6,600 low-income students who volunteer in K-12 on climate action or to reduce food insecurity. So there's a couple different things. So if you figure it out, it's a little over $66.7 million for students. The question Cal Matters asks is where's that other $92 million going? So it says here, most of it's going to hire and hiring and administrative costs, despite no guarantee the program will continue past 2024. Uh, some people think the money split makes sense because students could benefit from training and there's a chance the program could get additional funding in the future. Others think the money should go directly to students, so fewer of them will have to work on top of their other responsibilities. So this is a pretty nice long article and goes through this because I can see the and understand a little of both sides. What we generally get in this state, and although there's an official term for it called unfunded mandates, is where a program is passed or a new program comes up and there's no money to help administratively support it. You know, they come up with a new grant, but colleges go no extra money to support it. Maybe it runs out of the same computer system, but it means additional tracking, new system upgrades, things like that. Especially when it's something like this where it's a work program. Even if you're doing other work programs, that's extra work. It's not just another thing that pumps through your system and out the door to students. Someone's got to track hours. Someone has to get them through a hiring process. 
someone has to make sure that they're uh, working in a safe location. You know, liability. All those things have to be looked at. They can't exceed awards or hours or do other things. How do you do all that without any extra money? But that's kind of the state and federal way of doing financial aid a lot of times is create these nice programs that sound good to students, but don't help to pay for it on the administrative end. We're just supposed to kind of suck it up and learn how to do it. So I don't know exactly. I'm not going to comment on the dollars as they stand and as it's talked about in the article. This is something relatively new. So I don't know how much it would cost to implement anyways. And so I myself am going to have to read this article fully and talk with talk with my counterparts at other colleges about how this really is going to work. But I th- I mean, I'll definitely give you a link to this. Calmatters.org, I think, is just an overall great website. Goes through a lot of good stuff about what's going on in our state. And this one happens to be education-specific, but they talk on all kinds of topics. Talking about talking, I'm going to take a five-second break here so we can move our way into the last part of the show. And just like that, everyone, you know where we're at. It is time for our last sips, everyone. Or last slurps, as I say. It gets to be a little noisy. So this would be the time for any I dare you to's. I don't know if I have a particular I dare you to uh, to go with. Um, it's really hard to say, you know. I mean, we've had some big time here with sports. I think last time I said uh, at the at my last I dare you to was to accept whatever the outcome was. And for those L.A. fans or others who follow the Rams and support them, uh, you got lucky you got, in the sense that you don't have to feel bad about yourselves. For our Cincinnati fans out there who don't listen to this show, probably, unless they found the Cincinnati Community College Student Financial Aid Administrators Association and uh, and then steal our name, uh, I think we're a little safe, but I think it was quite the game. Uh, I dare you, if anything, see now that the most overpriced tickets for any game are gone because it would have been the Super Bowl. I'll uh, I'll put that out there as a dare. I dare you to to go to some live sports. Hopefully, we get baseball sooner than later. Everyone, uh, we are coming up on parts of spring training getting lost here while the contracts are still being worked out among our baseball players, and the owners. I hope they come to some logical agreement and get the season off the ground. So I'll put it out there, my dare you to go to some live sporting events this year. But that's all we have time for today. Uh, But don't worry, there's another show. We'll probably be recording on Thursday this week because Friday is a holiday. So expect an early release of the show. And I hope to have my counterpart with me. And I want to thank you again for joining us uh, joining us on the show today. Remember, What's Brewing Ceaseway is a production of Studio 1051, a creative collaboration of me and Dana Yarbrough. This has been episode number 162, recorded Tuesday, February 15th, 2022. Have a great day, everyone. Have a great week.